it is easy to become desensitized to the litany of outrageous things that Donald Trump has said over the years. But there is a reason that historians are concerned about Mr. Trump's latest stump speech. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Calling your political opponents vermin and the threat from within. We've heard that before. In Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler referred to Jews as vermin worthy of eradication, and Benito Mussolini would refer to his opponents as parasites and reptiles. So Donald Trump is following in some appalling and notorious footsteps of the most violent, dangerous men of the 20th century, or at least some of them. And Trump didn't end there. Here he was in the very same stump speech talking about the home invasion and the brutal attack on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, an attack that was carried out by a right-wing extremist. Nancy Pelosi is a crazed lunatic. She's a lunatic. She is a crazed lunatic. What the hell was going on with her husband? Let's not ask. Let's not ask. I'll withdraw that statement. By the way, she's got a wall around her house. Obviously, in that case, it didn't work very well. Nancy Pelosi is a crazed lunatic. That kind of glorification of violence, that call to abandon empathy, to stop seeing our shared humanity, that is no longer just Donald Trump. That rhetoric and that behavior has invaded Trump's entire party. Here was Trump's closest rival for the Republican nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis, in a radio interview today, mocking former Governor Nikki Haley for expressing grief over the killing of George Floyd in 2020. You know, I remember when um, the George Floyd riots were happening, I called out the National Guard. I said, I'm standing with police. She was tweeting that it needed to be personal and painful for every single person. And I'm thinking to myself, why does that need to be personal and painful for you or me? We had nothing to do with it. It just shows an example of her adopting uh, this left-wing mindset and accepting the narrative. We need leaders who are going to fight the narrative. Now, the narrative, to be clear here, according to a jury's verdict, is that George Floyd was brutally murdered as onlookers begged the officer who pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes as those onlookers begged for them to stop. But according to Governor DeSantis, any pain, any perceived pain for the public murder of an innocent American means you are somehow capitulating to the left wing and its agenda. This is Trump's effect on the Republican Party, a party whose worship of white male machismo appears to be turning into something brutal and cruel, where violence isn't just an accepted outcome in American life, but a necessary outcome. Nowhere was that more on display than in the halls of Congress today. For months now, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen has been in a feud with the head of the Teamsters Union, because the union president had referred to Senator Mullen as a greedy CEO. Today, the head of that union, Sean O'Brien, testified before the Senate Health and Labor Committee, where Senator Mullen revisited 
Sean O'Brien's invitation to settle their dispute any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your solution? Every problem. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. You are a United States senator. Sit down. The wheels are coming off here. A chain reaction started by Donald Trump now has Republicans not just ready to brawl with Democrats, but to brawl with each other. Just a few hours ago, Republicans under the leadership of Speaker Mike Johnson could not agree on a way to fund the government. And so they had to do what they always now have to do in this Congress, which is to rely on Democrats. With 209 Democratic votes and 127 Republican votes, the House managed to pass a resolution to fund the government for a few more months after weeks of infighting among Republicans. If you are a Republican right now, this is all completely embarrassing. The party ousted its last speaker for relying on Democratic votes to get something done, then held the government hostage while trying to figure out who could possibly lead the Republican conference, finally electing a hardliner who once again had to rely on Democratic votes to get the thing done. If that all wasn't just shameful enough for the GOP, the last Republican House speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is reportedly lashing out at the members who cost him that job in the first place. And when I say lashing out, I mean that literally. Today, NPR reporter Claudia Grisales was interviewing Republican Congressman Tim Burchett when the congressman claimed that former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy intentionally elbowed him in the kidney. Here is the audio from that incident captured by NPR. Why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Oh, no, I felt so bad. Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. Has he done that before? No. Huh. That's a new move. Hey, Kevin, why'd you walk by me and elbow me in the back? You got no guts. You did so. They sat there and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, You're pathetic, man. Kevin McCarthy later denied that he hit Congressman Burchett with yet another display of embarrassing machismo. Show me a reporter who saw that. If I would hit somebody, they would know I hit him. He said he knew he hit him. He said he said he said he was in pain that you hit him so hard. Oh come on now! Joining me now is NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales, who was the reporter talking to Congressman Burchett at the time of that incident. Uh, Claudia. First, just tell me from your perspective, what happened? Did you did you see Kevin McCarthy actually run up on the congressman as you were interviewing him? Uh, Great to be with you, Alex. I was focused on Burchett. He was coming up this long hallway that is a distance from the meeting room where Republicans were just meeting. And he had just come over to my side of the hallway. We were speaking. So I was fully focused on him. He had maybe said one sentence to me before he lunged towards me. We were about two feet apart. I'd say he came like about a foot towards me. And it was just such a shock. Uh, I remember Burchett yelling out to McCarthy, initially joking, saying, hey, Kevin, didn't mean to elbow. And then he switched and said, 
why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? And I start to look at that point. I realize that's McCarthy. That's his detail. They have walked by. And initially I had thought it was a joke, maybe a joking shove of some kind, a bump. Um, but from what it looked like, from my perspective, McCarthy had shoved into Birch. It appeared to be an elbow, as Birch had claimed. Uh, I, you know, you think about this incident that you, you captured both in audio and on social media, and we're now talking about it, with a quote from former Congressman Republican Adam Kinzinger, who in his book writes about, once I was standing in the aisle that runs from the floor to the back of the chamber. As McCarthy passed with his security man and some of his boys, McCarthy veered toward me, hit me with his shoulder, and then kept going. Is body checking fellow Republicans who run afoul of him like a thing for Speaker McCarthy? I know you're a congressional reporter, Claudia. How how much is this something that he does? I mean, have you heard about this before? Not before today. It, it is it has been a concern for me in terms of how high tensions have been running, especially within the House Republican conference, especially since McCarthy was ousted. I have been worried about physical altercations between members. I wrote a piece last week about members and their public infighting. But I was worried it would build up to a moment. It was just very surreal that it happened to play out right in front of my eyes today. But in terms of McCarthy's history here, no, I was not familiar with it. I heard about Kinzinger's experience just today from his book. And it's it's quite shocking to hear both, to hear that case and see what I saw today. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of tenor, that, well, the temperature actually inside the Republican mm -hmm. conference? We're seeing, you know, the explosions of anger in the Senate and the House. We, we, the titular, the, the front runner for the Republican nomination is makes anger part of his brand. What is the net effect of all that in terms of the legislative body? How does it feel in Congress right now? Yeah, I think we're seeing it play out. This is a perfect storm. It has been building all year. House Speaker Mike Johnson spoke to it earlier today before I had shared what I had seen, and he was talking about this pressure cooker in the House. It's something we've been wondering about, especially since October, when McCarthy was Speaker. He'd canceled two weeks of recess, and the work, the struggles, the tensions, the fighting that we saw the House Republican Conference go through in October, it just exacerbated a lot of sore feelings that were there earlier, from earlier in the year. They played out. Now Republicans were worried about death threats from uh, fellow Republican constituents. And so it is very worrisome. In some ways, it is not surprising to see this play out now. But in others, it's, it's, it's very shocking. Claudia Grisales, may I suggest um, elbow pads, shoulder pads, <laughs> whatever you need to keep doing your job with this essential reporting. Claudia Grisales from NPR, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Joining me now is Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist. His latest piece out today is entitled Trump wants us to know he will stop at nothing in 2025. Jamel, thank you for joining me. I can think of no better person to help sort of break down what exactly has happened to the grand old party here under the tutelage, if you will, of Donald Trump. I mean, first of all, what did you make of the fireworks, I guess is the most euphemistic term uh, that we saw in Congress today in the context of, you know, the age of Trump? 
On one hand, you can attribute, I think, some of the aggression maybe to Trump. You can attribute sort of the the real anger and disdain that appears to be within the Republican uh, conference to sort of some of the energies unleashed by Trump. On the other hand, I you know I, I remember the 2010-2012 cycle with the Tea Party and everything. I remember sort of like the the extent to which those members were really hyperbolic and aggressive and so on and so forth. And I think that the difference between now and then, right, is that now there are no really, you know, like moderating forces within the House Republican Conference, to the extent that there were even some prior, but there are none now. There's nothing really to bring the temperature down. And you have a new crop of members who really don't seem to be interested in governing whatsoever. Um, and so all that together just means you have the kind of situation where you're going to have the fireworks uh, that we saw today. I do wonder, you know, I, I totally agree with you that there's no moderating influence, but it seems like it's a step beyond that when you talk about 2010. And of course, Joe Wilson saying you lied to President Obama. Outbursts have been the GOP thing. But this almost we seem to be in a moment where violence and anger and outbursts are incentivized. And I, I'll, I'll go back to the piece that you wrote today in The Times. It is neither exaggeration nor hyperbole to say it looks like an awful lot like that Trump's plan, should he be reelected, looks an awful lot like a set of plans meant to give the former president the power and unchecked authority of a strong man. I feel like having a sort of idol who is a strong man or wants to be even more of an unchecked strong man almost gives license and encourages his foot soldiers to be their own sort of miniature, you know, Happy Meal versions of strong men. One thing you see, I think, throughout the Republican Party is just a rejection of the idea of persuasion, a rejection of the idea that you would do any kind of attempt to speak to someone who disagrees with you on an equal basis and try to bring him to your side. Within the Republican Party, I think we're witnessing that right now, where it's not just a rejection of anything like dialogue or persuasion with Democrats, but even amongst Republicans, no attempt to uh, do anything to reach out to people, to persuade people. But then broadly, the Republican Party nationally, there's Trump. Obviously, the, the entire notion of trying to seize power is, in some sense, a rejection of the idea that you should do any of the work of like democratic life. There are state legislatures who create these intense partisan gerrymanders that try to overturn or nullify the actions of voters. Again, an expression of this idea that there's no democracy to do anymore. We're just going to dominate over everyone around us. And this really does seem to be the the dominating ethos um, of so much of the Republican Party. And it's, it's hard to know what to do about it other than to sort of observe it and hope that it burns itself out. Well, yeah, I mean, I will also say to the point of like, there's no demo- there's no working across the aisle. There's no democracy worth preserving. The reason the Republicans aren't shutting down the government is because Democrats stood up and saved their butts. I mean, like the irony here as Trump is vilifying the fascist left is the, the fascist left is actually saving your butts in Congress. I mean, with ask, and asking nothing other than a functioning government. I, I got to ask you, Jamal, because... This is just so indicative of where the Republican Party's head is at today. This is Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, again, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen on Newsmax today, sort of making a historical reference as to why it's totally fine to come to blows in the U.S. Senate. Let us take a listen. 
Could you guys go bare knuckle if you wanted to? Just a well, we looked into it. the rules, and you know, you used to build a cane. You got to remember, President Andrew Jackson uh, challenged nine guys to a duel and won nine times. And a White House <laughs> dinner one time, a guy was mouthing him at the end of the table. Jackson jumped up, literally ran across the table, and knocked the guy out. Um, and so, at the end of the day, there is presence for it if that's what someone wants to do. Just a word on presidents, Andrew Jackson. Okay, if Republicans are taking their clues from the presidency of Andrew Jackson, Houston, we have a problem. Secondly, the guy he was caning, I believe, was abolitionist Charles Sumner. Talk about two chapters of American history that are probably not where you want to be drawing your marching orders from, Jamel. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I'd want to. Um... <laughs> I don't know if I want to compare myself or look favorably upon Preston Brooks's canning of Charles Sumner, which really was this sort of like major event in the history uh, of Congress that really galvanized a lot of forces. I mean, this this kind of glorification, glorification, this willingness to speak violently, to act violently. I, I get it. It speaks to this not just immaturity or aggression, but like rejection of the basic premise of democratic life, lowercase d democratic life, which is that we're going to talk to each other and attempt to persuade each other and attempt to engage each other as equal. Saying, you know, I'm going to throw down with you on the floor of Congress is a statement in the same way that Brooks's caning of Sumner was a statement that I don't respect you as an equal and I don't feel any obligation to. And that's just that's just not that you, you can't run a legislative chamber. You can't run a society like that. Yes, I think that's that's the takeaway. It's not just Congress. You cannot run a society like that. Jamel Bowie, thank you, my friend, for your wisdom and thoughts this evening. I appreciate it. Thank you. We have a lot to get to this evening, including President Biden, <clears throat> who is drawing a serious contrast with his predecessor, Donald Trump, on maybe the most important the most urgent issue of our lifetimes. Plus the leaked tapes of Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell telling Georgia prosecutors what they knew about the conspiracy case and what Trump knew. That's next. I made sure I wasn't late for this event, but I was with my team making sure that an emergency motion got filed. I'm not happy that it was released and that you and your colleague got to do your story. The story that Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is referring to there is the Washington Post's reporting on the proffer agreements, effectively confessions, from some of Trump's co-defendants who accepted plea deals in Georgia's election interference case. And from what we have seen and what we have read... There are both colorful details and substantive revelations. In the colorful category, the fact that Sidney Powell's first time meeting co-defendant Scott Hall happened to be at an alligator hunt. As for substantive, President Trump asked Kenneth Chesborough four or five questions about the matter of Arizona. And Chesborough described for Trump his memo on the fake elector scheme. There was also a coup plot revealed to Jenna Ellis at a White House Christmas party. This is what she told prosecutors about a conversation she had with top Trump aide Dan Scavino. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. 
Joining us now is Mimi Roca, the district attorney of Westchester County in New York and a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Mimi, thanks for being here. Let's just first pick up where Jenna Ellis left off there. This idea that Dan Scavino told her, we're just going to stay in power. I had to read it off of there. We're just going to stay in power. Seems like a searing indictment. Can it can be used in court? Is it hearsay? I mean, how does this qualify as a piece of, piece of evidence? The fact that you know to ask if it's hearsay shows that you're so My TV law degrees. Yes, in this. Um, so, first of all, I would say yes. I mean, th- this is damaging testimony if it comes in. Why? Because it shows that this was a plan. It wasn't that he really believed he had won the election, but rather this was the plan. I think her testimony um, in one of the questions was, well, why did he listen to you over some other lawyers? Well, because we were telling him what he wanted to hear. I mean, that that was Sidney Powell that said that. Yes, yes. yes. And that would negate a sort of defense of you know, advice of counsel. Exactly. And, and conscious you know, sticking your head in the sand, which you can't do all of that. So substantively, this is very bad for Trump. A hundred percent. But the fact that it's out is very bad, I think, for the prosecution. Can you talk more about that? Why? Why? I mean, obviously, Fonnie Willis is not happy about this. She wants a protective order. She filed for an emergency protective order on top of the protective order. She'd already asked the judge for a decision, I believe, is going to be made uh, in two weeks about that. Why is this bad for her beyond people knowing what the the goods are that she has? Well, or is there not a beyond? (laughs) I mean, it's it's mostly that because it's not just people. Now, the defense, I mean, the the people that she is prosecuting have a complete preview of some of the most, as we're discussing, damaging testimony. Now, maybe they already knew this. Maybe, you know, they, they know it through discovery, the defendants who it was given to. But. Now everybody knows it and the jury pool knows it. And so it's a better argument for to the defense for a tainted jury pool. Mm. Um, it prejudices, arguably, a jury. All the arguments why in every court that Trump is facing prosecution, people are arguing that he should be limited into what he can say publicly, because this is the same thing, right? You have public statements going out that are prejudicial to him. I mean, this is the kind of thing that as a prosecutor, you you see that this got out. And I mean, your heart starts having palpitations. It is it is not good to have this out there, I don't think. Does the release of it, presumably from one of the defendants who had access to it in the discovery process, does it does it count as a form of witness intimidation, putting this out there like that, suggesting to other witnesses, don't talk? I mean, her argument in her motion is it's clearly intended to intimidate witnesses. I don't know that I agree clearly, but it certainly can have that effect, right? Because if you're someone who's going to cooperate, you're saying, well, wait a minute, I thought what I told you is confidential, at least until and unless there's a trial, which there may or may not be. I mean, we say that to potential cooperating witnesses all the time as prosecutors. We say, what you tell us, we will keep confidential. Yes, we'll have to turn it over to the defense at some point, may or may not go to trial. So you may or may not have to. T-. There's a lot of steps to it becoming so public. And so the impact of that, one, on someone's willingness to come forward and tell you everything, and two, in this particular circumstance of the reality of the world that we're in, 
We know that people who support Trump and follow Trump and believe this is not a um, prosecution with integrity will come after people who are saying things um, because they're saying something bad against Trump, not necessarily because of, you know, anything else. Well, I, I do have to ask you just because it seems like the first evidence, though leaked and though problematic for Fonnie Willis, the first evidence that we may have connecting Trump to the fake electors plot is maybe given by Kenneth Chesborough, who in his proffer agreement in the videotape says he has a conversation with the president about the matter of Arizona and then describes to Trump his memo on the fake elector scheme. How meaningful is that, setting aside the obvious concerns about witness intimidation and what it does to the prosecution? I mean, again, I think substantively all of this is um, good evidence for the prosecution. Um, doesn't mean that there isn't a defense, doesn't mean there isn't evidence that Trump and others could put on, but it is good evidence for the prosecution, which, again, is actually why I think the prosecution doesn't want it to come out right. ahead of time. Um, I do think it's surprising that there wasn't a protective order in place. That was one of my first thoughts when I heard that this had come out. I understand that she had asked for one. The judge hadn't ruled on it. But this is a case where you would obviously want, want one. Follow up on it. Yeah. Um, D.A. Willis said about the possible timing of the trial here. I think this case will be on appeals for years, but I believe in that case there will be a trial. It will take many months. I don't expect we will conclude under the winter or the very early part of 2025. What is your reaction to that? I mean, I come from a school of shorter is better. So while I recognize that there are many defendants here, I think um, one, as just a trial strategy matter, streamline. Um, and also, you know, I'm not saying that they're right, but it will give it will give um, momentum to the argument that this is an interfering with an election if it goes through that time period. Although Donald Trump would very much like to have it extend into 2025 on the hopes that sure. he is reelected and yeah. can do something about it. What we're not quite sure. Mimi Roca, thank you for helping me understand just how bad and also strong some of this is. Uh, we have lots more to get to tonight. Tens of thousands of people gathered in D.C. today to march for Israel. But what that specifically means depends on who you talk to. First, Joe Biden did something today that Donald Trump would never have dared to do. What he did is coming up next. You probably don't remember the day after Thanksgiving 2018. You were probably still stuffed with turkey or eating pie for breakfast or sleeping in late, or maybe you were in line at a Black Friday sale, or I mean, who knows what you were doing. And that was actually sort of the point. Because back in the day, on 2018, on the day after Thanksgiving, the Trump administration released the fourth national climate assessment. And most people, most Americans probably have no recollection of this. The timing was intentional. The report, which comes out roughly every five years, has been mandated by Congress since 1990, and it serves to inform key policy decisions from interstate emission rules to how many cooling shelters a city is going to need to survive a heat wave. Now, to some degree, this was not surprising. The Trump administration famously ignored scientific consensus on man-made climate change. It rolled back key environmental provisions, and it shredded international agreements that 
have thus far been Earth's best shot at staving off catastrophic destruction as a result of a warming atmosphere. So, yes, the Trump administration released a really important report on climate when everyone was in a tryptophan haze at Best Buy. Today, things may be warmer than ever as we barrel towards the hottest year on record. But some things, at least, are different. This afternoon, President Biden rolled out a major climate investment. He announced an estimated $6 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill that will be used to help bolster the electric grid amid the growing threat of climate change. That threat was explicitly outlined in the government's fifth national climate assessment, which was also released today and not conveniently on the day after Thanksgiving. Hundreds of scientists across 14 federal agencies found that most aspects of American life, from our safety to our health to our economy, are all invariably threatened in a hotter climate. These scientists also critically connected the dots between climate change and extreme weather events, like last summer's extreme heat waves and wildfires and hurricanes. Speaking today, Biden called climate change the ultimate threat to humanity, and he gave a nod to the previous occupant of the White House. The solutions are within reach. Solutions are within reach. It takes time for the investments we're making to be fully materialized. But we just have to keep at it. That's a very different from the previous administration that tried to bury this report. They didn't even want to make sure that this, this report even came to light. That lack of transparency is perhaps not exactly a surprise coming from the guy who consistently called climate change a mythical hoax. Coming up, the war in Gaza rages on as hospitals turn into cemeteries, as massive crowds gathered in D.C. to express solidarity with Israel. That is next. Tens of thousands of demonstrators poured onto the National Mall in Washington, D.C. today to show their support for Israel. Among them were high-profile U.S. lawmakers like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and newly elected Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. The rally was called the March for Israel, and it was a unity event, an expression of solidarity with Israel. But it was very apparent today that supporting Israel in this moment means very different things to different people. Uniting the crowd were calls to release the over 200 Israeli hostages captured by Hamas and messages denouncing the rise in anti-Semitism. But other issues divided the crowd, particularly the issue of a ceasefire. When one of the speakers, CNN's Van Jones, said he prayed for peace and for an end to rockets from Gaza and bombs falling on the people of Gaza, the crowd began to drown out his speech, speech with chants of no ceasefire. Joining me now is Peter Beinart, editor-at-large for Jewish Currents magazine. Peter, thanks for being with me tonight. Um, what, what do you think the sort of, tell me what your impressions of this march are beyond the sort of, we can all agree on these two things. Like, what is the sort of, what is your takeaway from this, this sort of show of solidarity with moments of fracture? I'll be honest, I would have loved to be at this march. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the biggest marches in Jewish history. There is so much pain and suffering and agony 
in a, in a Jewish world today, all of us, including myself, know so many people who know other people who, who are captured, who are killed. Like the collective sense of solidarity, I would have loved to be there. Obviously, anti-Semitism is rising. It's a very real problem. Those hostages, I, I, I can't even, we have, they're, they're, I, we can't even, I can't even imagine mm-hmm. the, what their families are going through. But I personally couldn't go because this was also a rally in support of Israel's invasion of Gaza, which has killed now more than 4,000 children. That's more children than died in armed conflict in the entire world in the all of last year. And if you're going to justify killing all those children, you have better have really good answers about what Israel's strategy is Mm. to win this war. And I have not heard them. It reminds me so much of America in 2002, 2003. We're going to win. We're going to destroy them. Okay, what are you going to do after you depose Gaza? Because we all know from our experience, it's easy to depose a government. It's easy to go in. It's hard to get out. If Israel stays there, there will be an insurgency as far as the eye can see, a quagmire. If they try to install the Palestinian Authority, which is totally discredited, the Palestinian Authority could not hold Gaza in 2007, and they're far weaker, so they will still be in there. And that's why I couldn't go, because I can't justify this level of killing. I'm not sure I could at all, but certainly not without good answers to hard questions. Yeah, I, um, the Washington Post writes up uh that at the rally today, there were people brandishing plenty of signs just, you know, in support of Israel, in support of the hostages, but others brandished signs declaring make Gaza flat again. Now, you are not the only person that thinks entering this without a strategy could be a quagmire. It could also further radicalization. The U.N. special rapporteur, Francesca Albanese, warned last week that Israel's actions in Gaza are likely to just radicalize more people in the Arab world against Israel. Right. So what Hamas did on October 7th is evil. Hamas's values are fundamentally antithetical to mine, and I think any person who believes in decent moral values. But we also know, as you were suggesting, that Hamas recruits its fighters from the families of people Israel has killed. Mm -hmm. So you go in there, you've now killed more than 10,000 people. You're going to stay in Gaza. You're going to have Hamas or Hamas 2.0 or whatever is going to have a lot more people to fight you. Ultimately, you need a political answer to the lack of Palestinian freedom. If you don't have a strategy for that, even if you could eradicate Hamas, you would be fighting the next Hamas. Yeah, I do have to ask you when you talk about the death toll here. Obviously, there was yes. a staggering death toll from yes. that initial October 7th yes. attack. The numbers that we have today put the death toll at 11,240 killed yeah. in Gaza since the start of the war. The reports from the hospitals, the Al-Shifa hospital, which is one of the largest hospitals in, in Gaza, um, the director of that hospital effectively calls the hospital a, a, a cemetery, that, that they have to bury the dead in the hospital. Um, they're, they can't exit the hospital because they're saying that uh, Israeli IDF planes attack anybody exiting the hospital. Uh, There is no food. Medical teams are surviving on biscuits and dates. There are 100 dead bodies in the hospital. We are learning at this hour that the IDF is carrying out an operation inside the Al-Shifa hospital. I just wonder, as we hear these varying accounts, you know, sort of what you think the net effect is on, you know, Israelis and Jewish people across the diaspora who listen to this and and want some kind of retribution, but also understand that this kind of carnage may not be serving their purposes. 
Yeah, look, I know people, what people will say. People will say they're human shields. Hamas is embedding itself in civilian areas. That is probably true. You know what? That's the way all guerrilla movements fight. When America was fighting the Viet Cong in Vietnam, they were embedding themselves in villages, right? It doesn't mean the answer is to kill vast numbers of civilians in order to get a small number of the enemy because you're creating more of the enemy. And the only way you can ultimately defeat a guerrilla movement is to deal with the political issue underneath it. Palestinians have been fighting Israel for long before Hamas and will continue fighting Israel tragically long after Hamas unless they have their freedom. And they will, life will never truly be safe for Israeli Jews, who I care about so deeply, unless Palestinians also have freedom and safety and dignity. The two peoples are intertwined. I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu and his government appreciate that. Yeah, to, to Netanyahu, the, the, the point of Netanyahu, I think it's... Um, Less than 4% of Jewish Israelis report that they trust Netanyahu as a, a reliable source of information regarding the war against Hamas. Does that surprise you? Not really. This is the other problem, right, with allowing this government to lead this high stakes and effort with no answers. It's a, it's not only an extremist government, it's an incompetent government. It's the same government that basically was completely asleep at the wheel on October 7th because they had put so many of their soldiers in the West Bank to protect radical settlers rather than protecting people in southern Israel. Do we really think these guys have a good plan? I want the United States to be asking them really tough questions and not giving them a blank check to enter into a quagmire, which is going to be horrifying for Palestinians, ultimately not provide Israelis the safety they deserve and bad for America. Oh, God, Peter, it's a very difficult time and a very wrenching topic. Thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your night to talk with me. Thank about you. It. I appreciate it. Peter Beinart, editor at large for Jewish Currents magazine. Thanks again. We have one more story for you tonight about whether or not defendant Donald Trump gets to say whatever he wants whenever he wants. That's next. We have deranged Jack Smith. Have you ever heard of him? He's a lovely man. The Trump-hating prosecutor in the case, he's, uh, his wife and family despise me much more than he does, and he decides, I think he's about a 10. They're about a 15 on a scale of 10. That was Donald Trump this weekend at a campaign rally making disparaging remarks about special counsel Jack Smith and his family while he still can. Next week, the D.C. Court of Appeals is set to hear arguments about a gag order that Judge Tanya Chutkin imposed on Trump in his federal election interference case. The narrow gag order prohibits Trump and his attorneys from making public statements targeting special counsel Smith or his staff, the court staff and any witnesses. But the appeals court put that ruling on pause until it decides whether it can gag Trump as it might a normal criminal defendant. So for now, Trump is allowed to say whatever he wants. And Smith's team in a new filing today cited Trump's campaign event over the weekend as just one of the many reasons to stop him. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Joyce, it is always good to see you. Thank you for being here. Um, my first question is just, is there is there a question in your mind as to whether this gag order is going to is going to hold up in the appeals court? No, there's absolutely no question. This is a very limited restraining order that preserves Trump's rights to engage in political speech, 
The Court of Appeals may even go ahead and put it back in place during oral argument. That doesn't happen very often, a ruling from the bench um, during an oral argument. This may be the standout case because of Trump's ongoing conduct. Yeah, the fact that Trump literally ungagged, if you will, is on the stump targeting the special counsel's family sort of gives rise to the, the initial criticism about why the appeals court even put a stay on the gag order as it did while they sort of deliberated this. Yeah, I think the administrative stay is par for the course in a setting like this. You sort of preserve the status quo while you're taking just a few days to decide issues. But Trump's behavior, you know, Alex, I mean, we all know it is out of bounds. It is dangerous. Just the cavalier comments that he made about Paul Pelosi, the the really just trivial comments directed at Jack Smith endangering his family. This is the sort of conduct that the courts need to put a stop to immediately. Um, we know, uh, Joyce, as much as the, it sort of seems like fairly obvious what's going to happen here. Stephen Miller, his group, um, America First Legal, has filed an amicus brief related to this gag order saying it, it, um, it is unconstitutional, unconstitutional on the grounds of separation of powers. I think 18 red state attorneys general have also filed a brief saying that the gag order should be lifted. Is there anything to the argument that this is a violation of separation of powers? No, there really isn't. I mean, this is political theater. This is red state attorney generals continuing their allegiance to Trump as opposed to engaging any sort of realistic legal analysis. It's not a separation of powers issue. The law is very clear that a judge is entitled to put reasonable restrictions designed to preserve the integrity of a trial in place. Um, I do. When you talk about the integrity of a trial, there is a legal battle playing out over whether or not this federal trial should be televised. Uh, Smith is pretty strong that he does not want cameras in the courtroom, saying that Trump desires to create a carnival atmosphere. Um, Trump saying he wants everybody to see all of the horrible things and all of the horrible charges. Do you have an opinion on this and do you have a sense of how Judge Chutkin might rule on this? Yeah, I think that those are very different questions because the rules in federal court are clear. Cameras are prohibited. Media groups have come in and they've argued a couple of different things. One is that the rule is unconstitutional, that it violates First Amendment rights, so Judge Chutkin should should set it aside. The other is a technical argument about the nature of broadcast, which says that this can be done in a way that wouldn't violate the rule. I think it's unlikely that Judge Chutkin would go ahead and alter the longstanding practice in federal court. But that's very unfortunate because this is a case that should be um, put on television so that everyone can see it as it happens. The real problem is that Donald Trump's response in this case, this sort of last minute response that he files saying that Jack Smith is engaging in a show trial that he wants to conduct under cover of darkness is really nothing other than theater, because that's simply not the case. He excels at theater. Joyce Vance, thank you, as always, for your time tonight. That is our show for this evening. 